Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast. This is Apollo 13, Part 4. Apollo 13 is speeding towards the moon. They're approaching its western edge, which is in deep shadow, and then they'll fly from direct sunlight into darkness. And when they reappear on the far side, they'll prepare for and execute their critical PC plus two burn. The burn that will set them on a trajectory home. Then they'll have to learn to survive in a cold lunar module for days in space throughout their long fall to Earth. It's Apollo Control Houston, uh, 75 hours, uh, 58 minutes now into the flight. Apollo 13, presently uh, 3,573 nautical miles out from the moon, traveling at a velocity of uh, 4,943 feet per second. Our clock in mission control shows uh, we're at one hour, 10 minutes, uh, 30 seconds away from time of loss of signal as Aquarius and Odyssey uh, pass above the uh, backside of the moon. In mission control, we've had a uh, change of shift. Uh, Gene Kranz, white team now aboard. And as the spacecraft passes into the shadow of the moon, the sunshine around them starts to dwindle and the light illuminating the debris begins to drop away. The whole ship is darkening. It's just hours after the sun check to confirm their alignment and Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes are back at the controls of the LEM. Jack Swaggart is behind them, trying to stay out of the way. Lovell looks out the window and he suddenly sees stars. Scorpio and Antares. Swaggart looks out and says, they're all coming out. And then he says they have plenty for a navigation check. They pass the news to mission control and the word comes back that Houston is happy with their alignment. They don't want to waste time on a check. Lovell turns to Hayes and says, First time in the whole flight we've got stars and now we don't want to use them. Hayes says they're probably afraid of messing things up before the burn. And Lovell replies, I'm nervous about messing things up before we even get there. But Lovell knows that Hayes is right. Time is running low for checks, and once they pass behind the moon, they'll lose contact with Houston and be out for 25 minutes. Vance Brand, the Capcom, comes back on the line to read up the manoeuvring data for the PC plus two burn. Hayes takes out his notepad and pen and says, okay, I'm ready to copy. Brand reads up the data, Hayes copies it down, and then he reads it all back to Brand. And Lovell can hear concern in Brand's voice. Brand is tense. But Lovell realises he's actually becoming more relaxed the closer they're getting to loss of signal and the burn. Lovell looks out the window and sees the sun setting behind them. And then it sets. And Apollo 13 is in complete shadow. The debris appears to vanish like someone flicked off a light switch and the stars around them explode into view. Beautiful, bright pinpoints of familiarity that they've missed for so long. Lovell says over the calm, Houston, the sun has gone down and man, look at those stars. Hayes points out Nuki, which is incredibly bright. Swigert leans over Lovell's shoulder to look out and says, what's that cloud over there? Lovell replies, the Milky Way, thinking Swigert's talking about the band of light cutting across black space. But Swigert says, no, not the illuminated one, the dark one. Actually, two dark ones. They look like contrails. 
and Lovell has to look very carefully to see what Swaggart's pointing at. And then he sees them, a pair of what looked like black columns, only visible because they're blotting out stars and they're moving with the ship. And Lovell says, I can't for the life of me figure out what that would be. Then he adds, it might be debris that was thrown out there. Hayes asks, from manoeuvres? And Lovell replies, no, from our explosion. And this thought disturbs them. It's disturbing to think that part of their spacecraft has failed. Not only failed, but it looks like it's blown up. And Lovell feels that they, the crew, could have done a whole lot better job of communicating with mission control when everything had gone wrong. So much time was wasted because mission control focused on instrumentation. Lovell shakes his head. They should have told Houston more about the jolts and the movement. Less than 10 minutes away now from predicted time of LOS. Uh, We're at 76 hours, uh, 59 minutes into the mission. We see the velocity on our displays uh, for Apollo 13 uh, really building up now. Now reading uh, 6,736 feet per second. Then Brand comes back on calm. Aquarius Houston, go ahead Houston. Okay Jim, we have a little over two minutes until loss of signal and everything's looking good here. So only two minutes before they go behind the moon, Lovell checks with Brand that they don't need to do anything else before they lose signal. And Brand says no. Then Lovell and Hayes and Swaggart are quiet and they wait. Just a little over one minute now from time of loss of signal with the spacecraft. This is Apollo Control Houston, 77 hours, 7 minutes. loss of signal with Apollo 13 as it passes above the backside of the moon. We're at 77 hours, 9 minutes, and now to the flight of Apollo 13. The signal from Houston disappears, and they're truly alone. They've gone behind the moon, but out the windows of the limb they can't see the moon. Because of the darkness it's invisible, but they know it's there because below them is perfectly black. The moon is blotting out the stars, and they drift on and they're quiet. Then just about five minutes before they're due to reacquire signal, Hayes suddenly sees light appear through his window. Then he sees moon craters appear in the distance as they round the moon. They're moving out of the shadow and seeing a lunar sunrise. He grabs his camera, Swaggart grabs his camera too, and pushes over to where Lovell's standing. Lovell, who's seen all this 16 months ago on Apollo 8, just drifts out of the way. He watches as the two rookies stare out the windows and snap pictures. They're only 139 miles above the lunar surface. There's craters and hills and it looks a familiar but at the same time alien landscape. It's ghastly and rough. Lovell remains at the back of the lamb and watches Swaggart and Hayes. He watches their excitement as they take pictures and point out landmarks. On his last flight he wasn't the commander, but this time he is. And these men are his responsibility. So after a few minutes more, he calls Houston on the comm. They should have reacquired their signal by now. Good morning, Houston. How do you read? Reading you fairly well, says Brand. And Lovell looks out the window over Swaggart's shoulder and sees their trajectory is now taking them away from the moon and flinging them home. He says, All right, we read you fairly well too. And for your information, we're coming up on Mars Me now and it looks like we're climbing away. 
And Swaggart says, we're really zooming off now. And Lovell says, oh, yes, yes, we're no longer at 139 miles. We're leaving. And what's in Lovell's head now is the upcoming PC plus two burn. They have to be ready and set for it. There's no room for mistakes. They have to get the LEM powered up and they still need the power up details from the ground. So Lovell's checking breakers in anticipation, but in the cramped LEM he has to reach around Swaggart and Hayes. But they are only moving out of his way briefly, then floating back to the windows. It's like the moon is calling them. And this little dance goes on for a few minutes before Lovell gets sick of it. He drifts to the back of the LEM. He folds his arms and says loudly, way too loudly for this tiny cockpit, Gentlemen, what are your intentions? Swaggart and Hayes are startled. They turn around and look at him. Swaggart says, our intentions? And Lovell says, yes. We have a PC plus two manoeuvre coming up. Is it your intention to participate in it? Hayes speaks without much conviction, but he says, Jim, this is our last chance to get these shots. We've come all the way out here. Don't you think they're going to want us to bring back some pictures? And Lovell says, if we don't get home, you'll never get them developed. Then Lovell goes on. Now look it, let's get the cameras squared away and let's get all set to burn. We're not going to hack it with a splashdown at 152 hours. Lovell watches as the men slowly stow their cameras and get to work. Over the next hour they prep for the burn. Brand reads up power-up instructions and the lens systems are brought online. And eventually they're ready. Lovell looks at Hayes and gives a thumbs up and he looks at Swaggart and does the same. Hayes announces... 10 minutes to burn, then 8 minutes to burn, then 4 minutes to burn, then Bran comes online. Jim, you are go for the burn, go for the burn. And Lovell replies, Roger, I understand, we are go for the burn. And Bran says, 2 minutes and 40 seconds on my mark. And then he says, mark. And the computer's clock is counting down. And down and down, and it hits zero, and the three men feel the lem come to life beneath them. And Lovell says they're burning at 40%, and Houston copies they're seeing the same. And then 15 seconds later, they're burning at 100%. And Houston says through loud static, Aquarius Houston, you're looking good. And then moments later, they say, Aquarius, you're still looking good at two minutes. And minute after minute, Houston keeps checking in, telling them they're go. And Lovell replies, Roger. And at three minutes, Brand says, Aquarius, ten seconds to go. And then he continues to count them down. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And Lovell calls, shut down. And Brand says, Roger, shut down. Good burn, Aquarius. And that's it. It was so seamless, it almost feels like an anticlimax. But it isn't. They are finally, in a real sense, on their way home. Lovell knows that right now, there's a call being made to Mel Richmond on the USS Iwo Jima in the Pacific, telling them where to pick them up. And by Houston's calculations, that will be 600 miles southeast of American Samoa on Friday morning, or to be precise, 142 hours and 54 minutes into the mission. But this is some 60 hours away. And over the next while, Lovell and Swaggart and Hayes put the ship in its passive thermal role, the PTC. 
This means that rather than it falling back to Earth in a static position, they set the ship rotating about itself in what's called the barbecue roll. So as it moves towards the Earth, this rotation exposes all its sides to the sun, keeping all sides at a constant temperature. Now, if they didn't do this, the side of the spacecraft facing the sun would fry and the other side would freeze, and both situations could wreck the ship. And this barbecue roll prevents it. And the crew work on all this for two hours. Then they power down the LEM. They start switching everything off to satisfy Bill Peters' plan. They're turning themselves into the flying tin can. So it's going to be dark and it's going to get cold. And now they are well and truly exhausted. And Houston sends up a sleep plan. His is sent off to sleep first and Lovell and Swaggart stay up to watch Aquarius. And despite the fact the temperature is dropping in Aquarius, Lovell finds he can drift off to sleep. He stands floating in front of the instrument panel and he just closes his eyes and he drifts off. And finally the Capcom comes back on calm. It's Jack Lausma, he's just come back on shift. And he says, Aquarius Houston? And Lovell replies sleepily, hmm, yeah. Aquarius here. Lausma says, it's about time for you guys to get to bed and get Fred up. Roger says Lovell and adds, looking forward to it. Lausma tells them to take three hours and be back at 85 hours and 25 minutes. And Lovell can't wait to sleep. So he pushes away from the instrument panel towards the back of the limb and he floats up through the tunnel into Odyssey. And now it's his turn to be really shocked by how cold it is. Lovell reckons it's about zero degrees Celsius, or maybe a little higher, three or four degrees, but it's still freezing. Lovell looks at Hayes in his light sleeping bag in the gloom, surrounded by the grey walls of the command module. The air is clammy because of the moisture they're breathing out, and this moisture is already starting to condense on the instrument panels. Hayes is sound asleep, and around him is a thin layer of warm air. Because there's no gravity, there's no convection, so the warm air from Hayes's body isn't leaving him. As long as Hayes stays perfectly still, it cocoons his body, keeping him warmer than he should have been in the cold, mechanical space. Lovell shakes Hayes awake, helps him groggily out of his sleeping bag, and sends him down into the limb. Then Lovell climbs into his own couch and curls his arms around himself. He tries not to think about the cold. Then a few minutes later, Swaggart floats up into the command module and gets into his couch and tries to get comfortable. Lovell closes his eyes and turns towards the bulkhead and thinks about their situation. They're not even 15,000 miles from the moon yet and they're moving at less than 3,000 miles an hour. And they are slowing down. The moon's gravity is still close enough to sap speed from them and this will continue for about another 25,000 miles. Then at that point, they'll be close enough for the Earth to exert its gravitational pull on them, and they'll slowly speed back up again. At that point, Lovell knows he'll feel a little more comfortable. But now, as he lies there, staring at the bulkhead, he's still 225,000 miles from home. But exhaustion creeps up on him, and as the cocoon of warm air begins to build up around his body, He drifts off to sleep. While the command module is Jack Swaggart's ship, the LEM is Fred Hayes's. And with Lovell and Swaggart asleep, Hayes has got the LEM 
all to himself. And although it's powered down and dark and cold, he feels pride. Pride that this little ship, this little ship that had been designed to do something very different from what it's doing now, is saving their lives. And as far as Fred Hayes is concerned, it's his job to keep it alive and functioning. And that's exactly what he's planning to do. And the funny thing is that Hayes never thought he'd end up in space. He'd never even set out to be a pilot, let alone a test pilot. He'd been 18 years old with two years of college behind him. He'd never flown in a plane and he'd never even been in one. So unlike most test pilots who lived and breathed flying, he'd been different. The Korean War had come around, he'd wanted to enlist and serve and the only program that led to a commission was the Naval Aviation Cadet Program. So he ended up flying by accident, but when he did, he loved it. But when he got into NASA, he knew he was late into the game and he felt his chances of actually getting on a flight were slim. So instead of worrying about it, he just threw himself into getting his head around the hardware. Now at the time, NASA was assigning astronauts to the contractors building the equipment for the Apollo mission. And Fred Hayes found himself assigned to Grumman, who were building the LEM. So not only was he trained as a LEM pilot, Fred Hayes was sort of like a company pilot. He knew all about the insides of this craft. He knew what its relays looked like. He knew the pins on the electrical connectors and which systems they went to. He spent two years working on this machine. He knew it inside and out. So he's happy and he likes being in charge. For the first time since the explosion, he feels like he's in control. When he'd signed on the con, he'd said to Jack Lausma, I'll tell you, this Aquarius has really been a winner. Now he looks out the window into darkness and watches the moon receding. Houston Aquarius, he says, and Lausma says, go Fred. And Hayes says, I'm looking back at the left-hand corner of the moon and I can barely make out the foothills of the Fra Mura Formation. We never did get to see it when we were in there close. And Lausma tells him how far away from the moon they are and how fast they're going. And then Fred Hayes says, when this flight is over, we'll be able to figure out what a limb can do. If it had a heat shield, I'd say bring it home. And Lausma says, well, at least you give the folks at home a good look at the inside of the ship during the last broadcast Monday night. That was a good show you guys put on. And Hayes says, it would have been an even better one about 10 minutes later. And Lausma says, yes, things sure turn to worms in a hurry there after that. And Hayes pushes back from the panel to the bulkhead and says, And just for your information, Jack, I'm going to pass the time by tearing into some beef and gravy and other assorted goodies. And Lausma plays along. I presume you're doing this with the full permission of the commander? And Hayes smiles and says, And at this very moment, just who do you think the commander is? And this banter goes on, and then Lausma very casually asks Hayes to do something. He says, And Fred, sometime when you're not too busy chewing on that beef... How about telling us what the CO2 reads? So Hayes folds up his packet of roast beef and floats over to the carbon dioxide gauge. This is the gauge that tells him the level of carbon dioxide in the lamb. And he's shocked by what he sees. He can't really believe what he's seeing. He has to make an effort to collect himself before he replies to Houston. And when he speaks, he does so very evenly, like it's the most normal thing in the world. Okay, I'm reading 13 on the gauge. And just to be sure, he adds, yeah, 13. And Lausma replies just as evenly back to him. All right, that's pretty much what we've got here. Which is really reassuring because this gauge reading is serious trouble. Now, oxygen isn't a problem in getting the men home, but there's a problem with carbon dioxide. As the men exhale, they're slowly filling up their ship 
with carbon dioxide. And if this gas builds up too high, it will kill them. And the way boat craft deal with carbon dioxide is with lithium hydroxide canisters. And these canisters have to be changed when they get saturated. And the gauge is showing Hayes a reading of 13. Now a healthy ship should be around 3 and the crew are told to change out the canisters when it rises to 7. And now it's nearly twice that. And when this gauge hits 15 this means that the canisters are saturated. They're no longer cleaning the air. And from that point forwards Hayes knows the crew will start suffering from CO2 poisoning. They'll get lightheaded, they'll be disorientated, they'll be nauseous, then they'll die. Now this reading of 13 is a big surprise for Hayes because he'd ran the numbers and the lithium hydroxide canister should not be saturated yet. But then he realises he's wrong. He's based his calculations on a crew of two in the LEM. Which is reasonable because he always does his calculations based on himself and Jim Lovell in the LEM. Because the LEM is only ever intended to support two people. So he'd forgotten Jack Swaggart out of habit. Now the command module has canisters but they're square shaped. They're cubes. The LEM can only take round cartridges. So they can't use the command module canisters. But at least Lausma had said that Mission Control were reading the same value of 13. They must have a plan. And they certainly did. They had a device to solve this CO2 problem. And this device was ramshackle, but it was ingenious. This was the device that Ed Smiley had put together. This was the device that he'd worked on for more than a day. The device that had caught people's attention when he'd walked into mission control with it. And it was the most curious thing. And its purpose was to allow the crew of Apollo 13 to use the square canisters from the command module in the LEM. So Ed Smiley's ingenious piece of work was to find a way with only the materials they had in the two spacecraft to connect the cubic command module canisters to the LEM's cylindrical canisters. So Hayes asks if he needs to start going up into Odyssey to collect materials for the device and Lausma says no. Let Lovell and Swaggart sleep a little longer. But at this point Lovell reappears. He floats down through the tunnel and back into the LEM. But he still looks tired and dazed from sleep. Hayes says, you're back awful early. And Lovell says, it's too cold up there, Fredo. Then Lovell yawns and puts on his headset. Hello, Houston Aquarius. This is Lovell here, who's got the duty again. Lausma asks if Swaggart is with him, and Lovell says no, he's still sleeping. Because somehow, despite the cold, Swaggart has managed to get some sleep. So Lausma says, okay, as soon as he gets up, I'd suggest we go ahead and make a couple of lithium hydroxide canisters. It's going to take all three sets of hands, I think. But then Swaggart does appear. The noise has woken him. And around the same time, Joe Kerwin relieves Lausma as Capcom. And for the next hour, the crew go hunting for the materials they need to build Smiley's device. And the list is odd. They need a pair of scissors. They need two of the command modules, lithium hydroxide canisters. They need a roll of duct tape and one of the stiff pages of their LEM procedures. They need to get the thermal undergarments that Hayes and Lovell would have worn on the lunar surface. But they aren't after the water-cooled undergarments. They're after the plastic bag they're in. It's the plastic bag that's the important bit. And when they have all this together, Kerwin starts reading up Ed Smiley's procedures on what they have to build. And while it may have been reasonably straightforward to build on the ground, it's a hell of a lot more difficult in the weightlessness of space. And part of the problem is it's hard to work out what the ground really mean with these unrehearsed procedures. Like when Kerwin talks about the top of the canister, they have to actually define which end of it is the top. 
And when it comes to the duct tape, Kerwin says they need three feet of it. And Lovell wonders how they're going to measure out three feet when Kerwin just adds, make it an arm's length. And then they have to tape the bag from the thermal undergarments onto the canister with the page of the limb procedures inside it. But they work away, and although it takes them an hour to get the first canister built, when they're done, they're strangely proud of it. And what they have now is a square lithium hydroxide canister with one of their spare hoses attached to it, with a plastic bag over it and it duct taped to the canister. And under the plastic is the stiff page from the flight plan. And the way it works is they connect the hose to the air inlet in the limb, which in turn draws air through the hose, which in turn draws air through the cubic command module canister, which then scrubs the CO2 from the air. So the duct tape and the plastic bag are just a very neat way to connect the hose to the cubic canister. But, and this is the really clever bit, they need the stiff card of the manual to make all this work. Why? Well, without it, air would be drawn in through the hose, which would then suck in and collapse the plastic bag around the canister. And this would block the airflow. So this stiff flight manual page essentially acts as an arch to prevent the bag collapsing. Finally, to plug the unused hole in the canister, they use a piece of cloth. And Swaggart says over the comm, OK, our do-it-yourself lithium hydroxide canister is complete. And Kerwin says, OK, see if air is flowing through it. So Swaggart presses his ear to the canister and he can hear air being drawn into the vent slats. And he reports this and the three men look towards the instrument panel. The needle on the CO2 scale is still sitting on 13. And they watch. And it's so slow at first, like it isn't even moving. But then ever so slowly the needle begins to fall. First to 11.5 and then 11 and then below. This crazy little brainchild of Ed Smiley is working. And the crew now feel that if NASA is willing to throw plastic bags and pages of a flight manual into the fight to save them, if NASA is willing to think this far outside the box, then maybe they may just get through this. In fact, Fred Hayes is so pleased with himself, he announces he's going to finish his roast beef. But now, with the CO2 problem solved, Houston tells the astronauts again that the lack of sleep is still a real problem. The flight surgeons are comfortable that Hayes has done okay, he's had some sleep, but the other two astronauts are another story. Deke Slayton, who offered Jim Lovell his astronaut's job so many years ago, orders Lovell and Swaggart back to bed. And they go back to bed, which leaves Fred Hayes again back in charge of his ship. And it doesn't take long for the Capcom Vance Brand to come back on the comm with bad news. And Brand says... Just wanted to let you know that at the moment you're pretty much right in the middle of the fairway, right around 6.5 degrees. And he pauses, and Hayes waits for the butt, and it comes. We are getting a little drift though, and if we don't correct it, you're going to shallow out of the corridor. Now this means they are drifting off course, off their trajectory, and if this continues, they're going to miss their re-entry target and not make it back home. So in order to successfully re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, they have to be on a trajectory that will put them on the right re-entry angle once they reach Earth. And this is a pretty tight re-entry angle to achieve, between 5.3 and 7.7 degrees. If they come in shallower than 5.3, they'll skip back out of the atmosphere and they won't re-enter. They'll bounce back into space and won't get home. 
But if they come in steeper than 7.7, they'll re-enter too fast and the G-forces will be so high that it'll probably crush the crew before they hit the water. So they need to be at an angle between 5.3 and 7.7. And what Vance Brand is telling Fred Hayes is that their angle is shallowing. And if it keeps shallowing, they're going to skip out of the atmosphere and not get home. So Hayes says, all right, what do we want to do about that? And Brand says, what we're thinking about is a mid-course burn at 104 hours. Then he adds, just a little one, about 7 feet per second. Hayes says that sounds good. Then Brand says, only complication is that we're also looking at your supercritical helium tank pressure, and we do expect it to blow. We don't know exactly what time it will happen, maybe about 105 hours or so. Even if it goes early, we figure we've got plenty of blowdown capacity, so we'll probably be all right. And to all this, Fred Hayes simply says, that sounds okay too. But wow, now Fred Hayes knows that everything really isn't okay. The very fact that Houston is considering some sort of burn to correct their course means that they really need to correct it. Because the LEM isn't designed for this kind of firing and stopping and firing again. The LEM's descent engine is designed to fire and take them down to the surface of the moon, and that is it. They'd use a different engine, the ascent engine, to leave the moon's surface. So here is their engine, designed to be fired once, and they are firing it many times. They've already fired it after the explosion to get themselves back on a free return trajectory, and then they'd fired it for the PC plus 2 burn, and now Houston wants them to fire it again. And the problem Brand is referring to, the helium problem, is a tricky one, and it's a problem they can do nothing about. It relates to how the engine is designed to work. So in order to force fuel into the LEM's combustion chamber, they use helium. And this helium is stored in the supercritical helium tank. So the gas is stored at a temperature of minus 452 degrees and at a pressure of 80 pounds per square inch. But helium expands quickly and the pressure in this tank increases over time. Now the tank is designed to cope with a much higher pressure than 80 pounds per square inch. It's designed to cope with 1,800 pounds per square inch. Now, this is a huge margin, but Brand is just after telling Hayes that at 105 hours into the mission, pressure in the tank is going to reach this value, and the tank will fail. Now, it won't explode at this point, and it won't explode because there's a disc included in the gas line that will burst and vent the gas out into space to ensure it fails in a safe manner. So that isn't the problem. The tank fails in a controlled manner, vents the helium into space, and all is well. But the problem is that once this happens, they can't really fire the engine again. So once the disc bursts, the engine is as good as dead, and they can't make significant course corrections from that point onwards. So if they need to correct their trajectory, which Brand says they do, they need to do it before the disc bursts and they lose their engine. Because after that disc bursts, the only way Hayes can fire the engine is with the fuel that's already in the fuel lines. And this is the blowdown Brand was referring to. And all of this is news to Hayes, because with the ship powered down, he isn't able to monitor these pressures in the fuel lines. The ground are doing that, and he isn't monitoring their trajectory because the guidance computer is powered down too. So Hayes now knows that at some point before this disc bursts, Houston is going to make them do a burn to get them back on track and they need to do this before they lose their engine. Then after that, they need to keep their fingers crossed that they won't have to do any more major corrections, because they won't have an engine to do it. But Hayes isn't going to talk about this over the open calm. 
so he says nothing and then he drifts towards the back of the lem where the crew have a tape player and music tapes. Now the original plan was that after they'd finished on the moon they were going to entertain themselves on the way home by playing these tapes. And now Hayes thinks to hell with worrying about stuff he can't do much about. So he picks up a tape and he puts it in the player. The song not only fills the lem but it's also picked up by the comlink and they hear it in mission control. And as far as his is concerned, this song is the soundtrack for his ship. The Age of Aquarius by the Fifth Dimension. The music plays and Fred Hayes is happy. Then Brand calls over the comm. Hey Fred, you got a woman up there or something? Hayes laughs and replies, no way I could handle that. And Brand says, well, since you're in such a good mood, let me make it better. Somebody just handed me the latest consumable status report and it looks like you're only using between 11 and 12 amps an hour. That's a couple amps below what the Telmu guys projected, so you look real good. And then Brand tells him even more good news. According to our little tracking plot here, you're now about 44,000 miles out from the moon. Fido tells me that means we're in the Earth's sphere of influence and starting to accelerate. The Earth is now pulling them home and Hayes says, I thought it was about time we crossed. Roger says Brand, and Hayes says we're on our way home, and Brand says that you are. And Hayes really is happy now. The tape recorder keeps playing and it's floating in the air behind him and he drifts over to look out the window back towards the moon. The ship shudders and it reminds Hayes of Monday night's explosion. He has to brace himself against the bulkhead. And he knows this is another explosion, but it hasn't come from above him in the command or service module, it's come from beneath his feet. It's come from the LEM. Somewhere in the LEM there's been an explosion. His mind races and his first thought is the helium disc. It's burst early. But it hadn't felt like a burst disc. This was different. So he looks out the window and he's shocked. The LEM is venting something. Hayes sees a dense cloud of snowflakes coming up from the descent stage of the LEM. Whatever it is, it isn't helium. This isn't a burst disc. He forces himself to calm down and goes on calm. Okay Vance, I just heard a little thump, sounded like down in the descent stage, and I saw a new shower of snowflakes come up that looked like they were emitted from down that way. I wonder what the supercritical helium pressures look like now. And Brand responds calmly, but Hayes knows Vance is about as calm as he is. Another explosion is not what they need now. And Brand comes back on calm, and all he can offer is that it wasn't the helium. That's all. Hayes knows that the control console must have told Brand that the helium pressure was unchanged. So it isn't a burst disc. And the fact that Brand doesn't offer another explanation means he, nor anyone else in Mission Control, has any idea what caused the explosion. Because if they did, they'd have told him. All Fred Hayes can do is accept it, give Houston time to figure out what the bang was, and hope it wasn't anything bad. And all the time, floating in the cabin, the tape recorder turns and plays, and the age of Aquarius doesn't seem quite so entertaining anymore. When Jim Lovell wakes, he's very cold. But despite this, he's managed to sleep for four and a half hours. He looks over and Jack Swaggart is still fast asleep. And the command module is freezing and it's clammy. Because of the cold, the moisture from the crew is hanging in the air and it's settling on the consoles and instrumentation panels. Everything is damp 
and all this moisture is penetrating the command module. It's cold soaking it. And the whole situation is made much more miserable because they're not doing urine dumps anymore. Now usually when they'd urinate, their urine is dumped overboard quickly. But because Mission Control wants to make sure nothing pushes the spacecraft off their re-entry trajectory, and even something as small as a urine dump could, word has been passed up saying no more urine dumps. So now they are storing it in bags on board the spacecraft. And it's now Wednesday afternoon, the day Jim Lovell was meant to have taken control of the LEM and landed it on the lunar surface. But that isn't going to happen anymore. Instead, he's looking at two more days in space in these miserable conditions. But Jim Lovell has done tough before. When he became an astronaut and joined the Gemini program, there was one mission that no one wanted. One mission that all the astronauts were trying to avoid. Because one of the missions in Gemini was to prove to NASA's doctors that a person could survive in the weightlessness of space for a prolonged time. So Gemini 7 would orbit the Earth for 14 days straight. This was considered long enough to prove that a man could survive going to the moon and back. So Jim Lovell, along with astronaut Frank Borman, got this mission. It was Lovell's first time in space. And it was gruelling. They were crammed into a spacecraft with an interior no bigger than the front seat of a car for 14 days straight. Borman was the commander and Lovell was the rookie. Then three years later would be Jim Lovell, again with Frank Borman as well as Bill Anders, who would fly Apollo 8. This was the first ever manned spacecraft that left Earth's orbit and travelled into deep space. And on Christmas 1968, they became the first humans to orbit a celestial body. To Jim Lovell, this was the most daring thing he'd ever done in his career and one of NASA's finest hours. And now this, a crippled mission. And not long after the explosion, he told Fred and Jack that the explosion couldn't have happened at a worse time. They were so far from the Earth and they still hadn't even gone round the moon. But he knows now that he was wrong. It didn't happen at the worst time at all. If it had happened closer to the Earth, then they probably couldn't have done the direct abort anyway. They couldn't have used the service module engine. If it had happened in lunar orbit around the moon, it could have been very bad. They would have had to try and use the LEMS engine to get out of lunar orbit, which may not have worked because the engine may not have been powerful enough. And the true nightmare scenario was if it had happened when he and Fred Hayes were on the lunar surface in the LEM. Then Jack Swaggart, orbiting the moon in the command and service modules, would not have had his lifeboat and there would have been nowhere to evacuate to. Jack Swaggart would have died and Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes would have been dead too, stranded on the moon. So in a way, Jim Lovell now considered himself lucky, because the explosion almost couldn't have happened at a better time. So he gets himself out of his sleeping bag, and he's about to go down into the tunnel to the limb when he makes a decision. He's going to break one of NASA's golden rules. It's his biomedical sensors. The glue that attaches them to his body is meant to be hypoallergenic, but it's irritating his skin and he wants rid of them. But to take these sensors off is to break one of NASA's golden rules. And this skin irritation isn't the only reason he wants to take them off. Because what's really starting to irritate Jim Lovell is that everyone in mission control knows his heart rate. He knows he can always calm himself before he speaks on the calm. And when he does, he appears in full control. But... He can't stop his heart racing when things go wrong. 
and it annoys the hell of him that Mission Control can tell when this is happening. And he reckons there's going to be plenty of times over the next few days when his heart is going to be racing, and it's his business and no one else's. So there and then he makes his decision and he pulls off his biomed sensors and stuffs them in his pocket. Then he makes his way through the tunnel and into the lem. Hayes says morning and asks if Swaggart's still sleeping. Lovell says yes and asks for a status report. Hayes says Houston wants to do a mid-course correction that night, Wednesday night, at 105 hours. And he says they want to do it before the helium disc bursts. And then he says also, looks like we had an event in the descent stage. Lovell says, an event. So Lovell gets on the calm and talks it through with Brand and Brand doesn't tell him what caused the bang. And like Hayes, Lovell knows this means they don't know. So Lovell moves on rather than make Brand admit this on the open calm and they talk about the upcoming burn instead. And now Lovell's worried. An explosion that no one can explain, a shallowing trajectory and a tricky mid-course correction to fix it and all with an engine that could burst a disc. He doesn't like this at all. And then Brand comes back on the line. And there's only one more thing, Jim. Could you switch your biomedical switch to the position opposite wherever it is now? We're getting a signal, but no data. And Lovell's silent, and time ticks by. Finally, Lovell says, Now, you know, Houston, I don't have the biomed on. And Lovell waits, and he almost dares them to reprimand him. But there's silence, and then Brand simply says, Okay. And it's at this point that Jim Lovell figures that when he gets home, he owes Brand a beer. Wednesday wears on, cold and damp. The crew have put on their extra pair of undergarments to try and stay warm, and Lovell and Hayes have put on their lunar boots. Swaggart does without. Now they considered putting on their space suits, but without fans to circulate the air, they reckoned they'd only sweat in them and this sweat was going to give them chills if they had to take them off again, so they shelved that idea. And now both ships are dark and cold, like a dripping twilight. Then, at 7pm, the comm comes alive with a procedure that no one expects, least of all Jack Swaggart. With his ship, the command module offline, he hasn't had much to do, but now Houston has a job for him. Brand says, while we're getting ready for the mid-course burn... We've got a procedure here we'd like you to copy down for powering up the command module and turning on the instrumentation so we can check telemetry. Lovell says, this is to power up the command module. And Brand says, that's a firm. Lovell looks at Swaggart and says, you following this? Swaggart says, sure, I'm just assuming it's a mistake. So Lovell gets back on calm and tells them Swaggart will get some paper and copy down the procedure. Swaggart takes out his pen and signs on. Vance tells him it's a lengthy procedure, about three pages. And it takes half an hour to get it down, and it's complicated and improvised. And it's all designed to get enough power going in the command module so that some data on the command module's current state can be collected by mission control. This isn't enough to bring it online or anything like that. Houston just wants to have a look inside the guts of it to see how it's coping with being in freezing conditions for days. Is it frozen solid? Is it damaged? So Swaggart pulls off his headset and floats up into the command module. He's feeling better now that he's got a job to do. He begins following this procedure. He's throwing breakers, switching inverters and moving antenna. And as he's doing it, he can't see much happening. 
All he's really doing is turning on sensors and opening channels for the data to flow to Earth. And he knows that while he can't see much, the ECOM, in this case Cy Labergott in Houston, should be seeing plenty. Or at least he hopes so, and he hopes it looks good. But in order to hear the news, he needs to get back on comm, so he floats back down the tunnel and into a curse, and he pulls back on his headset and asks how they're reading. And the news is good. Brand says it doesn't look too cold, so it looks like no sweat. Swaggart says, Roger, thank you very much. Then they ask Swaggart to go back up and switch everything back off again using a backout procedure. Lovell watches him go up the tunnel and he's very happy with the news on the command module. But they still have to figure out how to turn it back on again. But he puts this all out of his mind because right now he's much more worried about the LEM. Houston have finally told him what caused the explosion. It was one of their batteries in the LEM's descent stage. But Houston still seems to think they have enough power to get them back home with just the remaining batteries. And then there's this burn to correct their trajectory. And Brand comes on calm and runs through the plan. They're coming in shallow and need to do a 14 second burn at 10% trust to get them back on trajectory. But they can't use the computer because Mission Control doesn't want to use the power. So they're going to do it manually. This really is trying to do a precision burn to put themselves back at exactly the right angle for re-entry, and they're doing it blind. Lovell's going to press start and stop on the computer for the 14 second burn, and in order to make sure they're heading in the right direction, Brand is suggesting an unusual procedure. Brand says, For attitude, what we're going to want to do is manually orientate the spacecraft to place the earth in the centre of your window. Put the horizontal line of the optical sight's crosshairs parallel with the Earth's terminator. If you hold it there throughout the burn, the attitude will be correct. Got that? And Lovell says, I think so. And then he realises it all seems very familiar and he says, Hey, sounds just like what we came up with on Apollo 8. And Brand says, Yes, everybody wondered if you would remember that and by golly you did. When Lovell was coming home from orbiting the moon on Apollo 8, Mission Control wanted to run a test to see if a ship could still get home, even if it lost its guidance platform by using the position of the Earth and the Sun to orientate itself. And the experiment had worked. The tested procedure was written down and nobody ever really thought it would ever be needed again. But now they needed it, and it would turn out that the person who executed it in the test was also the very person that needed to do it now for real. And Brand continues, And Fred, when Jim has the Earth centred in his window, you should also be able to see the Sun in the alignment telescope. It'll be at the very top of the field of view, just splitting the cursor. That will confirm your attitude is correct. And Hayes says, I understand, Vance. Lovell turns to Hayes and says, Frito, what do you say we stop this PTC spin and see if we can't go hunting for the Earth? Hayes replies, whenever you're ready. Swaggart has just finished putting Odyssey back to sleep when he feels the spacecraft moving. He knows Lovell has taken them out of the barbecue roll. He drifts back down the tunnel and sits on the engine cover at the back of the limb as Lovell swivels the ship around to find Earth. Hayes says, Whoa, I've got the Earth, and he adds, You're getting good at this manoeuvring, Jim. Hayes looks through the telescope and the sun is splitting the cursor. They're ready to go. Hayes says, Houston, Jim has the air to lined, and you're right, the sun is in the EOT. Roger, good going 13, says Jack Lausma, who's just come back on calm. If the attitude looks okay to you, why I guess it's your choice when you want to burn. And Lovell says, we're counting down, aren't we, or do you want us to start any time? 
and Lausmissa is your choice, and Lovell answers, you guys are getting easy. Lovell turns to Hayes and Swaggart, you guys ready to try this? They both nod and Lovell says, alright, Jack, since we don't have any countdown clock, you time the burn with your watch. We're firing for 14 seconds at 10%. Frito, since we don't have an autopilot, you grab your attitude controller and also take care of ignition and shutdown. Got it? And they both nod again. Lovell says, Houston, let's make this burn in two minutes. Lausmith says, Roger, two minutes, we got it. Lovell sets the throttle for 10%. Hayes positions himself at his controller. Swaggart is looking at his watch. Lovell says, two minutes on my mark. Mark. And they wait. And Swaggart watches the two minutes count down. And then one minute. And then 45 seconds. And then 30 seconds. Then he counts one by one. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And Lovell presses the engine button and the floor of the lem vibrates beneath them. And Swaggart counts up the seconds. And as they do, Lovell and Hayes tweak the controls to keep the ship in the right place. To keep the earth in the window. And when they're getting close to 14 seconds, Lovell has his finger right over the button. And once Swaggart says 14, he presses it and announces shutdown. Lovell says over the comm, Houston, burn complete. Lausman replies, okay guys, nice work. They are now back in their corridor for re-entry. But it's that night that Fred Hayes gets sick. He'd gotten the first sign that something was wrong earlier. He'd noticed a burning sensation when he urinated. Then the fever had started, and now he feels very aware that whatever's wrong with him, it's starting not long before one of the most dangerous re-entries ever attempted. And the cause of the problem is that they've stopped venting urine. And because they're now storing it, the men are tending to back off on their drinking water. But without enough water to flush out their kidneys, toxins are building up and there's a risk of infection. And that's exactly what's happening to Fred Hayes. This is the beginning of a very nasty kidney infection. Lovell notices how bad he looks and they're discussing it when... There's another explosion. A thump and some vibration. Lovell jumps to look out the window and sees another cloud of icy crystals flying off into space. He looks at Hayes and says, that was the end of our helium problem. And he gets on calm and Lausma confirms the helium pressure had gotten up to 1,921 pounds and was now falling fast. It was certainly the helium disc. And the men just float. The enormity of the journey that's behind them is sinking in on Lovell. His crew survived the explosion that crippled their service module and forced them to abandon ship. They've gotten themselves back on a free return trajectory. They've checked their guidance platform and they've flown round the moon. They've executed a PC plus two burn with an engine not designed for it. They've built a makeshift device to scrub CO2 from the air. They've completed a burn with no computer or guidance system. And throughout all this, Lovell has watched the spacecraft slowly die and give up on them. The exploding battery, the burst helium disc, the inability now because of this burst disc to adjust their trajectory in any significant way. And this crew have survived all this while being very cold and very miserable and damp and very, very tired. And now Hayes is running this fever and he looks like he's going to get a whole lot worse before he gets better. 
and now they're speeding towards Earth, getting faster and faster all the time. And Lovell floats and gazes out the side window lost in thought, then turns to his men. They're exhausted. Hayes had been making his way up the tunnel into the command module when he'd fallen asleep. And Lovell almost has to laugh because Hayes looks comical. His head is sticking down into the limb with his body in the tunnel and he's just drifting and fast asleep. Swaggered is in Hayes' usual place in the limb. He's curled up on the floor and asleep too. And Lovell just floats and watches. Then he speaks quietly to the ground and Lausma tells him that he'll let him know if there are any other procedures. But then Lausma seems to change his mind and says there is something they'd like to talk about. And what Houston want to talk about is their plan for re-entry and splashdown. Lausma wants to know if Lovell is okay to discuss their ideas. Lovell looks at his crew in the darkened limb and he looks out the window again. This re-entry and splashdown is probably the most dangerous NASA is ever going to attempt. They still don't seem to have a plan to power back up the command module. And even if they do have a theoretical plan, there's no guarantee it'll work in practice. What about all the moisture and dampness all over the command module's instrumentation? What sort of condition is the heat shield in? Have they managed to correct the trajectory enough to make re-entry safe? Yep, it was going to be one of the most dangerous and ad hoc re-entries ever attempted. So when Lausma asks Lovell if he'd like to discuss their ideas on how to get this crew home, to get them through this very last re-entry leg, his answer is yes. Yes, he would. In fact, Jim Lovell is just hanging out to hear how NASA plans to pull this one off.